Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 18th, 2020, and this is episode 2662 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. We're going to talk about um, a little bit more about my recommended supplement lineup for... Um, COVID and how more and more professional organizations, doctors, etc., are starting to actually point it out. But we're specifically going to talk about it in a, a question that um, I really had not expected to get about uh, two of the items that I recommend. Um, and I, I want to say again that I'm not a doctor or whatever, and I'm not prescribing anything, and I'm not saying it treats or prevents or cures disease because if I came on the air and I told you that um, – If I were to say, I am telling you, and I'm not, but if I was to say, I am telling you that vitamin C cures scurvy, and actually make that as a medical claim and say you should take vitamin C if you're worried about getting scurvy, and if I actually said that as though I was prescribing it to you because of the lunacy in our government, I actually could, they could come after me for prescribing a drug without a medical license. So whenever I tell you this stuff, I'm just telling you, based on the research I've read, this is what I think other people are saying you might want to do. And uh, But an interesting question about the stuff I recommend. Next up after that, I'm going to give you a makeup segment. Um, Friday, I introduced J.R. Haley's segment on concealed carry. And then I told you my thoughts on it. And somewhere in between, I didn't actually drop the segment in, and it didn't get on the air Friday. And oops, I, it was a great segment, too. So uh, we're going to make up for that today. I'm going to go back and edit it into the old episode so people that download it two years from now don't email me and tell me how stupid I am. Um, but thanks to all of you that did email me and tell me that I made a stupid mistake because, well, I did. Um, how to keep a steady harvest of mid- and long-term produce coming in all season long? This is an interesting question. Um, and succession planning is how we do it. But there's some other strategies we can take. Basically, with the, the person that wrote in is saying that You know, I have all the peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers I want all summer long, and that's where the garden supply seems high. But some things that you plant, you know, take a long time to produce, and then they're hard to start in the heat. And can, Is there any way that you can have a lot of variety all through the summer um, of things that generally we do pretty good with in the spring and fall and even winter? And there's some strategies we can address that with, definitely. Um I have a question on inverted fish towers and why I think they look cool, but they're probably not really a good idea, especially long-term. Um, there are some myths and facts uh, about rabbits and worms in the spring and summer. This is one that comes up a lot. I haven't talked about it in a while, so I will uh, today because I got a question on it. Um, one university, and actually more than one, this is just the latest one that's in the media, But more and more universities are starting to actually drop ACT and SAT requirements uh, for college admissions. I'll tell you why. They, yeah, it's probably a sign of the, the dwindling impact or the dwindling uh, dominance of university-level education and the whole everybody should go to college myth. But I'll tell you why. Dropping a test course is really something should have been done long ago. I'll tell you how stupid they are in general. Um, and then Amazon is out of Texas Tomato Food and Master Blend. What now for hydroponics? Uh, I will give you what I'm going to try next. I've already ordered it. It's not here. 
I'll tell you why I selected it, but I can't officially say this is a great thing yet. Um, but yeah, because so many people are growing their own food uh, due to COVID and because the hobby's blown up so much and because manufacturing is also down, um, things are starting to dry up. The uh, I don't know why the Texas tomato food people are not shipping product. I really don't know if maybe there's a component they can't get or something because they're a small business right here in Texas. Uh, Master Blend is, is a, a product that like everybody in the industry uses, right? So I can see where they would get really hit hard. But Texas Tomato Food, I'm not sure. They're not even taking orders right now. So I've found another product that's very, very well thought of. It's a liquid product, and I think it'll work just great, and I'll tell you why I selected it when we get to that segment. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at our quote of the day today. Um, this is from Albert Einstein. Yeah, one of the smartest humans that ever lived, and he said about the truth, if you're out to describe the truth, leave elegance to the tailor. I, what I think Einstein meant when he said that is, give the truth, the short version of it, the direct truth, and then let others who excel at making things look pretty take care of explaining it. And, and that's interesting from a guy who probably is one of the most elegant mathematicians that there ever was. And I, I think that you can be the truth teller that uses the hammer and the elegant tailor at the same time. But we summarize, this is the truth. This is the part that you need to understand. And then over here's the music if you want to go read the sheet music. And I think, man, there's, there's a huge case to be made for that, and not just with COVID today, but with so many things. There is a point where... When we want to look at truth in, in the modern world, we do need to use some common sense. We need to use some common sense and say, hey, look, like here's historically what things like this have looked like. This is why everything you're saying now doesn't jive with that, and here's what we can glean from historical context, or here's what this research says, or you know whatever, and then just be blunt about it. So here's an example of something like that from the, pe the people pushing back, the people I, in a, in a lot of ways, agree with about COVID that's just stupid. That doesn't make any sense if we just look at common sense or even finding doctors to push this narrative. And that is, if you wear a mask, you can get CO2 poisoning. Okay. Um, my head hurts when someone makes a stupid claim like that. So first of all, the whole point with surgical masks, we're talking about masks like that now. We're not talking about gas masks. We're not talking about hazmat masks. We're not even talking about N95 masks. Because N95 masks, at least you have some level of actual restriction of airflow. But a surgical mask is not going to give you CO2 poisoning. That is the dumbest thing ever. And I could go through a lot of elegant music as to why that's stupid. But I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you that something that allows free airflow is not going to give you CO2 poisoning, you mental midget. And it's not going to clog up. It's not going to prevent the air that you breathe out from coming out. That's one of the reasons they're not that effective in the first place. But you're not going to get CO2 poisoning by putting a T-shirt over your face. Which means you're not going to get CO2. See, that's, that's a simple truth. And I don't care who you trump up to counter that truth. If you want the music, go find it. You have to be an idiot to believe that a surgical mask 
is going to cause somebody to get CO2 poisoning. And the re why do otherwise smart people want to believe that right now? Because they don't want to wear a mask. And so anything that bolsters their belief will be immediately swallowed like, you know, I don't know, well-flavored tripe. I mean, come on. You're going to get CO2. Oh. Now, um, reusing masks and using them over and over again can certainly cause a buildup of other toxic bacterium, etc. Um, a surgical mask will not prevent you from getting COVID, as in prevent COVID from passing through the mask into your face and down your throat. Um, it has limited effect in its ability to prevent spread, but it has effect. It has effect. Um, the way you could look at it is it, it reduces range and muzzle velocity of your exhaled air. Now, if we actually look, you can actually see if you were to do something like, I don't know, have a person breathe in cold weather, you'll see you know, what looks like smoke coming out through that mask. That's, that's your airflow. There it is. That's, that's moisture with your airflow. That's, that's your little virus load if you're infected. Okay? Um, but if you look at it and you look at somebody breathing at the same rate in the same environment without a mask, you'll see that that flow goes further and more broad. So a mask can help slow spread. doesn't prevent it. And it does almost nothing to prevent you from getting it unless you're wearing a protective mask like an N95. Can an N95 mask over time um, cause CO2 poisoning? No. Can it maybe reduce your O2 levels? Sure. Sure, because you're restricting the flow of air. Isn't that the same as CO2 poisoning? No. <laughs> no, you're getting less total air in. You're not getting CO2 poisoning. Uh, you can have lower O2 levels. Um, you want to make a case for that being CO2 poisoning? Shh, go ahead. But you, you know, the total number of people who have passed out and died because they wore a mask of CO2 poisoning is zero. It's a dumb argument. Now, go ahead and... Your keys, there they go. There they go. Now let somebody else read the music to you. I just gave you the truth. Leave elegance to the tailor. I'm not I'm not even gonna read your stupid effing email. I'm not. Anyway, let's move on from there. I think the cognitive dissonance between masks don't work because this virus doesn't get through them and oxygen molecules can't just oh the dumb. Anyway, moving on. Um let's start out with a question about The COVID supplements that I recommend, or the, the supplements that I say, science says, may help prevent or lessen the effects of COVID if you're exposed. <clears throat> the effects of, the, the, again, how I say that, that the science says, based on everything I've read, that they might help you. I'm not saying it, okay? Um, I recommend that you, based on that, Consider a good multivitamin, and you specifically, on top of that, beef up. It's really easy to remember A, B, C, D, and E vitamins, A, B, C, A through E. Uh, I also recommend that you take Qcertin in the maximum safe daily dose, spread out over two doses a day, morning and evening, and that along with that, you take supplemental zinc, not to exceed the safe dose of that either. And then at, in the maybe, let's say in the morning dose would be a good time, you include green tea extract. 
And there's some other things that I've recommended, but that's that's the, the core of it. I also recommend some supplemental selenium, and you be very careful with that because you can exceed selenium. You can actually take toxic levels of selenium. So in all of this, you do not exceed recommended daily dosage. You do exceed, by a long shot, recommended daily allowance. Recommended daily dosage is what they say is safe to take. Recommended daily allowances is what they say you need in order to not be sick. Like, that is the low, like, no. So we exceed the RDA, but not, not recommended dosage. Not recommended safe dosage. Got it? Okay. Well, the question came in and was basically, why do you recommend green tea and Qcertin? Isn't green tea just a source of Qcertin? Okay, so Qcertin is, or Qcertin, I'm not sure how to pronounce it properly. I've heard it both ways by intelligent people. Um, but Qcertin is a naturally occurring compound in many plants. It also is contained in elderberry. I've also been told, all you need is elderberry. Okay, look, elderberry is great. Love elderberry for what it is. The amount of elderberry you need to consume to get a therapeutic dose of Qcertin when it comes to the purpose of why we're taking it here is so much elderberry that you're not going to take it. See, Qcertin is in... Huge number. In fact, almost all plants have some. Got it? So does green tea have some quercetin in it? Yes. How much? Not that much. Not that much. Certainly not the 1,000 milligrams a day that you can take in two doses of, let's say, 500 milligrams would be one way you could do it. That's considered safe. WebMD, etc. says that's considered safe. Please verify for yourself before taking any medication. And if you have any doubts, consult with a health professional. Got it? Because I'm not one. I'm not going to Club Fed over this. No way they're going to get me. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm not saying it works. I'm saying that science says it works. Got it? But green tea is not taken along with zinc for the small amount of quercetin that's in it. No, there's a compound in it that I tend not to say because it's very difficult to say. And I'm going to try it. It's a very extremely multisyllabic word, even for me, right? <laughs> I'm going to try it once a, one time. I'm going to say this. It's epogallocachitin. Gallate, all right? Epogallocachitin, gallate. And if that's wrong, it's wrong. It's a bigger word than I need to say. But that is the compound you're, you're trying to get out of the green tea. And the green tea out of everything is the one you really have to be careful. You can take too much green tea because it can be toxic and because it has caffeine. So if you take a mega dose of green tea, not only are there other things in it that could actually be toxic, but you're taking a huge dose of caffeine, which is not a good thing. If you had to give up the quercetin or the green tea, because I'm not saying that word again, which one would I give up? I would give up the green tea. If you have a reaction to quercetin, though, then maybe you try the green tea instead. The reason I suggest those two, and specifically with the zinc, Zinc is very difficult to get inside your cells. It's very difficult. The body actually needs a very, very small amount of zinc. And it only kind of takes what it needs. Doesn't mean you can't OD on it. Those are two different things. But the body generally takes what it needs into the cells. But the body, when it's under attack, may not realize that it needs something. So that's where zinc ionophores come in. A zinc is a substance. When it is in the body, in the presence of zinc, all of a sudden the zinc just passes through the cell walls, and all of a sudden your cells have lots of zinc inside the cells. We don't take zinc 
to deal with RNA replicating viruses, which coronaviruses are. This, this is what I'm about to say is true, as far as I know, for all RNA replicating viruses and for other RNA replication um, hijackers, like certain cancers, for instance. This seems to be true for, according to the science and the research I've read. The zinc has to be in the cell. And if you have zinc inside the cell, and an RNA virus is attempting to replicate itself, it impairs the viral replication rate. doesn't prevent it 100%, but it impairs it. The more zinc, the more impairment. Again, this has been shown over and over and over again. Well, both epigallocatechin gallate and quercetin have been shown to be zinc ionophores. Got it? So if we take zinc and these things together, we get more zinc into our cells. What I have personally done is I take supplemental zinc both in the morning and the evening. I don't take it at my dinner dose. I have my supplements I break into breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, actually, breakfast, dinner, and bedtime. Is, I'm sorry. And what I've done since I don't want to be taking caffeine right before bed is I take a single zinc, uh, I'm sorry, a single uh, green tea extract capsule, uh, my quercetin, half my daily allowable dose of quercetin. And a zinc supplement in the morning, I take my standard multi and all the other stuff I take at that point, which I'm doing in conjunction with my, my health practitioner, uh, Dr. Stevens of Grief Wisdom Health. Then I take my dinner stuff, which has, there, there's a, a multi in there, so there's a little zinc, but there's none of this stuff, right? And then in the evening, I take my second portion of the quercetin, and I take a little bit more zinc. I also make sure I take supplemental selenium, ACDNE, etc., B, vitamins, etc. And am I saying this guarantees I won't get COVID? No. What I'm saying is all the research indicates that doing this makes your body better able to resist and or fight um, COVID and other RNA replicating viruses. And doctors who specialize in infectious diseases have reviewed what I've said and said that checks out logically. That makes sense. If you follow what you're saying, you can't hurt yourself, including one doctor from this audience who's an infectious disease specialist that's been in his specialty for 30 years, turned around and bought all the stuff for his family. That's why I'm saying this. And now, VA saying, very very close match to what I'm saying. Uh, a VA circular went out saying this recently. Uh, the uh, Eastern Virginia Medical School has come out with a prophylaxis protocol It's very, very close. It's not exact, but very, very close to what I'm saying. More and more people are saying this. So I recommend you consider this for your own needs. I'm not saying it will work. I'm saying that it could work. It's not expensive. And if you follow guidelines, not mine, but professional guidelines as to, you know, don't exceed these dosages, um, don't mix fish cleaner in with it or something stupid like that, it should work. Additionally, I wanted to talk a little bit about hydroxychloroquine And, and, and how important it is to understand some of the flawed logic being used to continue to attack this medication. The re one of the reasons, anyway, that hydroxychloroquine appears to work so well is it's an incredibly powerful zinc ionophore. The doctors using it and that are saying, this works for my patients, are using it as soon as the patient's diagnosed with positive COVID, before they're heavily symptomatic, before they're in the hospital, And they're doing it with zinc. And they've been saying that all the way back to that, that Russian doctor who was the first well-known doctor to come out screaming this 
about hydroxychloroquine. That's what they've been saying for over two months. This is how you use this medication. The studies that have been done largely are on highly symptomatic patients without zinc in the hospital, in ICU, on at least cannulated oxygen, if not on a ventilator already. I, I need you people that are resistant to this idea to understand how stupid that is. Anthony Fauci, who I don't really like that much, but he was right when he said when this whole thing started, we have to make sure the right medication goes to the right patient at the right time in the right way. So then we take the studies and we make sure that the right medication goes to the wrong patients at the wrong time in the wrong way. And then we say it doesn't work. So let's take this away from COVID, which is so very stigmatized by politics right now, and let's apply it to another ailment, one that killed a hell of a lot more people, one that wiped out almost three-quarters of the world population at a time, the bubonic plague, a.k.a. the Black Death. Let's say that right now you go crawling around in a, a cave in, in, in the desert somewhere in the U.S. Southwest, and you get bit by some fleas, and it turns out that you got the plague, the real plague. Not, they're calling this, this is not the plague. They call this the plague. Trump's even called It's the plague. No, it's a freaking coronavirus, for God's sakes, with a death rate well under 1% if we actually use the right infection rate instead of the fake one. Okay? That's what it is. But let's say you get the real plague. Like, untreated, your odds of death are about 99.9 as far as you can go. I'm not going to say 100% because I have no idea if anybody ever survived, but pretty much everybody that gets the plague, untreated, dies. And what eventually happens is your whole body hemorrhages, you start bleeding out of your mouth, your nose, your lips, your ears, your eyes, and you hemorrhage to death. It's a very disgusting, very painful death once you have the plague, and you're going to die. But let's say you get the plague, we identify that you have the plague, what is the treatment today that is almost 100% successful? Antibiotics, specifically penicillin. We have somebody that initially starts to show minor, the first symptoms of plague, and we have reason to believe they have plague, and we immediately treat them with penicillin. The cure rate's almost 100%. The longer they have it, the lower the percentage of the cure rate. If you wait till a person starts bleeding out of their mouth and their nose and their eyes, you can pretty much give them all the penicillin that you can find. And you will never cure them. They will die. They will. Ha it's too late. The disease has progressed too far. The, the, so, let's say that we decided we wanted to figure out if penicillin cured the plague because we didn't know. And we only took patients at the point where they were hospitalized and beginning to hemorrhage. And we gave them penicillin and we said it didn't reduce the death rate. Therefore, penicillin doesn't work. Can you see how stupid that would be? Can you see how that doesn't really conform? But let me tell you the secret. The reason I wanted to have this conversation with you, I want to tell you the secret that they don't want you to know. Like You hear that all the time. It's usually marketing bullshit. This is the truth. The secret they don't want you to know about the vaulted peer review. Peer review doesn't actually review to catch what I just said. Do you see what I'm saying? Like Peer review of a study on the use of hydroxychloroquine on patients in an ICU setting to determine if hydroxychloroquine reduces death. And it, that's the study you did, and that's what you said you did. When the peers review it, 
they will not review it to see if the medication was properly used. They'll review it to see if the medication was properly used within the confines of the study. So they'll give a patient outline in the study. Patients, you know, were from this age to this age, percentage this sex, this sex, percentage this race, that race, etc. Uh, the medication was given at these levels, blah, 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 blah. And when the peer review comes, they'll say, well, did they do what they said they did? And was the sample size large enough and representative enough that the conclusions given are correct? And they'll look at that and they'll say, yes, they were. This seems like it works. So what they're actually saying is, when this medication is given in this dose to these patients at this stage of the illness, it does or does not work. That's a peer review. It is not, does hydroxychloroquine have any valid role in the treatment of COVID-19? That's not what the peer review is looking for. It's looking for, did it work under the clinical setting that the study was based on? So the peer review can say, they're right. They're right. Doesn't work. So let's look at another potential type of, like, let's make it ridiculous so we can make it understandable. <sighs> let's say that you get shot in the chest with a bullet. The bullet's still in your chest. They remove the bullet. You die. And they say, well, removing the bullet doesn't help. Well, does it? It depends. Sometimes we want to remove a bullet. Sometimes we want to leave it there. But once you've been shot, the bullet's not your problem. The damage it did is your problem. So when you take a patient who's already at the point of you know, being put on their stomach and having cannulated oxygen forced into their, their system so they can get air and breathe or being put into practically a coma, having a tube stuffed down their throat, and having oxygen and air forced into their lungs to blow them open with the use of a ventilator, their problem at that point really isn't the virus. It's all the damage the virus did, like a bullet. The bullet could have passed straight through you. It's still left behind the damage. And unless we fix the damage, right... We, we can't really change that. Likewise, let's say you'd been wearing a bulletproof vest. Okay, if you get shot and you're wearing a bulletproof vest and the class of armor is up to prote protecting you against whatever you're shot with. In other words, you're in class 1 armor and get shot with 3006. Good luck with that. But let's say you're wearing the proper vest for the proper round that impacts you. You still get hurt, but the bullet doesn't go inside and you don't die. Okay, so put the bulletproof vest on the guy five seconds after he gets shot and tell me bulletproof vests don't work. That's what taking hydroxychloroquine, using it in the absence of zinc, on a patient in late-stage illness is when all the doctors are telling you use it early with zinc and possibly a Z-pack, Zithromycin, for secondary infections. And it seems to me, based on all of this, that these studies that they're pointing to saying, oh, it doesn't work, are intentionally flawed. And if you think about it, in many instances, doctors were prohibited or impaired from using the, the, the medication as the other doctors were saying to use it. Because governors said, you can't do it unless you do it in a hospital. Well, so what you've already done is eliminated the patients that can be most helped by this medication. The timing 
is as important as the, 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 the right treatment to the right illness. Again, take somebody with plague, just exposed to it, give them lots of penicillin. In general, they do just fine. What was once the scourge of mankind can be easily treated with a few dollars worth of antibiotics. Let the disease progress to an advanced enough state, and it doesn't. Just think of how many things are like that. How about rabies? You get bit by a rabid animal, they immediately give you inoculations, you don't develop rabies. Once you develop rabies, it's over. Think about it with cancer. You have cancer. Somebody else has cancer. Exact same type of cancer affecting the exact same area. You're in stage one, they're in stage four. The treatment that works for you may not work for them. Why? The disease has progressed and spread further. See how simple that is? Like, it's asinine to deny that. But, because politics we have. So, I, I, I don't want to turn TSP into the COVID cast. I really don't. But it is the number one thing affecting us in life right now. And I think you need to know, if you or a loved one is diagnosed with this, you need to talk to your doctor about hydroxychloroquine, as long as there's not a compelling reason for you not to take it, like you have some sort of arrhythmia or something, along with zinc. And the reason I put my protocol together is because I just researched how can I naturally do some of the same stuff. Because I'm not a doctor, and I don't know what else hydroxychloroquine does to help a patient with COVID. I mean, one of the things that hydroxychloroquine is used to do is to simmer down an overreactive immune system in a lupus patient. So one of the big things that causes people to die from COVID is their immune system becomes hyper-responsive and goes into cytokine storm. Excessive inflammation, it also reduces that. So it does more than possibly quercetin and green tea and zinc can do alone. But I kind of see this, if you load up your cells with zinc, there's no way in which, in my opinion, as a layman, you don't impair the ability of any RNA virus to replicate inside your body. And that would seem like a good idea, considering it can be done for you know 50 cents a day. Just my thoughts. You make your own decisions on that. I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, and I'm not going to Club Fed because I'm not prescribing anything. All right, next up, um, J.R. Haley did this great piece on Friday for you on concealed carry, and I screwed up and didn't play it. So I'm going to play it for you now. So if you're looking to get going with concealed carry, Where do we start, JR? And for this time, I'm actually going to play the segment. Hey, TSV. JR here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Today's question comes in from Chris in Minnesota, and he's asking about carry firearms, and specifically, what process I'd recommend to go through in selecting one. What size of firearm, from full size to compact, to semi-auto, revolver, and even caliber. Well, Chris, as you alluded to in your email, this could be a giant can of worms, and I'll do my best to keep this to the nuts and bolts of it all. I'm sure we've had a few folks in the TSP audience mold this over recently with the state affairs throughout the world. First part I'll address is when we're talking about carry pistols, for me that puts that firearm in a category of fighting pistol. I have quite a few firearms, but many of them would never go in a rotation on my hip as a carry firearm. Fighting firearms for me are from tried and true manufacturers, usually kept very close to stock configurations, and are factory built versus homemade. 
in the case of my pistols, they get their sights changed to something I prefer, and that's about it. I stick with manufacturers and models from the likes of SIG, Smith & Wesson M&P series, Glock, models that have seen wide adaption throughout the world of professionals that are in the business of being in a potential gunfight. I don't modify the triggers or recoil springs. If I were carrying a 1911, I'd probably change out the recoil spring at the recommended intervals, and that'd be about the maintenance that we do on it. And although nowadays you can buy all the parts to build a pistol yourself, I wouldn't put myself in a position to use a home-built firearm for self-defense as when we go back to my original criteria of tried and true. Home-built is just never going to really hit that criteria for me. Real quick explanation as to why I think this way about these tried and true makes and models. I've taken quite a few pistol classes over the years and sometimes you'd have as many 15 students in a class. Invariably, you'd have a beginner who'd never shot before, just got their house broken into last week, and bought something that they could afford for around $300 because 500 was just too much for something they'd barely use. Or you'd have somebody that was like the brand-specific guy that loves his Ruger 10-22 rifle and loves his Ruger Mini-14 rifle, so now it's time to get a Ruger semi-automatic pistol. What I saw every time in these type of thinking and compromises is that when you get away from those tried-and-true makes, I would see malfunctions throughout that class. That student would just be fighting that pistol more than fighting the target. And the last place you want any of those issues is in a gunfight. We train for malfunctions. We train for them to happen and how to get back up and running when they do happen. But hedging your bets with great quality makes of firearms is good insurance to avoid that happening in one of the most stressful moments of your life. So to the new person carrying a firearm, did you know that a lot of the gun ranges actually have firearms to rent? This is going to give you a great opportunity to get some range time in with several makes and models that are out there. And if you do this, you'll be able to really tell the difference between the size of the different firearms, that full size or mid-size, compact, or even subcompact. Inevitably, when making a decision about carrying a firearm, the great caliber debate is going to come up. So when you're renting firearms, you'll be able to see that firsthand. What's the difference between the big three of 9mm, 40 Smith & Wesson, or 45 ACP? If you're one of those that is going to go with a fighting revolver, then you can try out 38 Special. You can just try out 357 Magnum at the same time. Or maybe you're like country music artist Ashley McBride and her dad that carried a Bible at a 44. A gun range and a good gun range is going to have that selection and be able to let you try all that stuff out. The last piece I'll touch on, Chris, that you didn't specifically mention in the email, but I find is crucial part of carrying a firearm is how are you going to carry it? A holster, belt, are you gonna, how are you gonna convey that big old iron horse around? Well, you can go with leather holsters, 
leather belts, Kydex, blends of both of those inside the waistband, outside the waistband. Are you going to carry off-body in a bag or a backpack or a purse? What about appendix, which on your waistline is around the 1 o'clock position? If you're going to carry on-body, you need a belt that is designed for gunfighting, one that doesn't roll because it isn't stiff enough. It needs a secure buckle and not something that just looks like a decorative class that you use to secure a motorcycle helmet. What I personally use is a SB2 sport belt from Galco Leather. For holster choice, whether you go with leather or Kydex, you need to be able to reholster that firearm one-handed without looking at the holster. So I'll say that again. Reholster that firearm without looking at the holster and to be able to do it one-handed. Some of the leather holsters that are out there, as soon as you take the pistol out of that leather holster, the top of the holster starts to collapse and compress down. It doesn't hold its shape. So when it's time to reholster, you're fishing around with the nose of the pistol um, as you're trying to get it back in the holster. So you want to avoid that. Kydex avoids it altogether because it holds its shape. Holster and belt are going to be essential to making a good carrying combination, just like selecting that quality firearm. So save yourself the heartache of using that $15 Walmart belt that's going to lose shape quickly over time and that good enough Uncle Mike's universal holster that is just an accident waiting to happen. There are some really painful and deadly lessons that have been learned by professional gunfighters over the years as to why they pick higher quality equipment. If you're choosing to enter the world of being prepared to confront lethal force with the firearm, listen to that wisdom by following their lead. And after you make all these choices, test them out with a beginner concealed carry class. Not shooting yourself in the family jewels is just as important as being able to hit your target. And for the folks of you that are new, just get over that fear that you're new to it all and just just take the class. The folks that you're going to meet at these classes are going to be some of the nicest you'll ever meet. And the most important piece of that training is getting your mindset into that mentality that has you ready to carry and use that firearm if you have to. There's a lot of discussion. It's not just all range time. There's a lot of getting that mentality set up and prepared and getting you in the right mindset. So I would just encourage every one of you listening, if you're stepping in this or you're new to this, get out and go train. They're not that expensive, um, and it really will be a fun time, and you're going to be able to test out all of that gear that you have that you're using. And many times, if you're away from this advice that I've given, you'll find that some of these flaws will show up, and you'll be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to turn this around. A lot of us have a complete box or old drawer, junk drawer or whatever, full of old holsters that we don't use anymore because they just don't work. And fortunately, some of the mentors and the trainers that I had in the very beginning 
gave me some of this advice very close to it. I've had to go through a few iterations, but I don't have the drawer full of holsters that some of these other guys do because I was given some of that advice. So I share it with you guys today. All right. Thanks, T- thanks TSP. And back to you, Jack. Next up, uh, Tom emailed me. Tom wanted to know how to keep a steady harvest coming long term through the, the, you know, what's supposed to be the best part of the growing season. He said, you know, I, he says, I read your, your piece on fennel early this winter at the grocery store and dealing with those kids. And I laughed really hard about it. That was, I, I can't even begin to retell that story, but that was check out girl and bag boy and not understanding fennel and smelling and tasting like licorice was. There was an internal diabolic dialogue I had with my dark self while this was all going on, and I was tormenting them. Um, he said, so I, I, I really like fennel myself. I've started growing a lot of it, but it takes about 80 days to produce a mature bulb of fennel. That's fine when you're starting it in late winter, early spring, etc., but starting it in the summer, even transplants, maybe it's not going to do so well in the heat. There's a lot of other plants like this. All summer long, I have as much squash, good for you, dude, because they squash bugs take me out pretty quick, tomatoes, peppers, and the typical cucumbers, typical stuff that you would expect, even green beans. But a lot of the other things that take a lot longer to grow, I, once I harvest them, I don't have them anymore, and I find it hard to keep them going. Is there anything I can do about this? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple things. Let's start out with your specific fennel. I love fennel, too. We just harvested a great big bulb of fennel ourselves and did a roasted fennel and carrots uh, with steak Sunday night. It was fantastic. Um, I get it, man. Here's this huge plant. I go in with my knife, cut the bulb off at the roots. It's not coming back. It's not. It's done. And this big space, it's now empty. And right now, if I put a little fennel plant in there, it's going to do just fine. But yeah, I mean, another month or two, I put a fennel plant in there, not so great. So one of the things we can do with something like fennel is staggered succession. So what we do is we plant some fennel this week. Two weeks from now, we rate... Just a little bit away from it, we plant some more fennel. Two weeks from there, we plant some more fennel. And two weeks from more, we plant some more fennel. And instead of waiting until that plant goes away, we actually have stacked in now. We've stacked in time for harvests. And so by the time we've planted the fourth one, the first one's close to harvest size. So we cut it out. So now light can get in, space can get in. The next one takes off, Right? And then when we harvest that, the third and the fourth. And by then, maybe we're through our really bad heat, and we could start stacking more back into the fall. So that's one approach that we can take. The other approach is to plant some things that are long-term continuous harvests that stand in for things. So um, Swiss chard is one of my favorites for this. So we plant Swiss chard, we cut and come again, cut and come again. So now we've added a leaf crop to bridge us through that time in the summer when, you know, you plant lettuce and you think it's going to do okay and you give it a little shade and still, like, before it's big enough to really harvest, it explodes with, like, this giant bitter stalk and it goes to seed because it's just too hot. That's another way we can do this. Another way we can do this is to plant things like lettuces in shade as more like a mesclin mix in the heat then we would, you know, more like growing out individual plants and trying to do cut and come again. Cut and come again with, with most lettuce varieties 
even Salanovas and stuff like that in the south in the summer, it's just not happening. But if we can find kind of a shady area and do a mix, four or five, six different varieties of lettuces, and as soon as they're baby green size, we harvest them, they actually grow really fast. Uh, you might get a second cutting, but what you can do is you can do a cutting and then seed right on top, throw some dirt right on the stubs, and you can do that. And keep looking for other things that are like this. One of the other things he mentioned you know, was carrot. Carrot's another one we can do a planting, wait a couple weeks, do a planting, wait a couple weeks, do a planting, wait a couple weeks, do a planting, and interplant carrot in a lot of our areas. Do that with beets as well. Um, so that we have a harvest, and then a couple weeks later a harvest, and a couple weeks later a harvest, and a couple weeks later a harvest. Because what happens is you end up trying to hold in the ground too long, and your carrot starts splitting, or your shard goes to seed, or whatever. You need to do some harvest, right? Your beets, they go to seed. So by heart, like stagger your, your plantings and do interplantings, and interplant in areas where you know some of the things will go away. One of the plants that's like booming for me right now, and I love it, and I would just love for it to go all summer long, but it won't, is nasturtium flower. I love nasturtium for the greens and the flowers. They got that bite, that peppery, but, you know... A couple of them are already just starting to yellow out on the outer edges. The places where they get a little more shade, they're doing a little bit better. They're just starting to really flower everywhere right now. Great big nasturtium greens all over the place. If I lived up in New England, they would grow all through the summer for me. But here, the heat will kill them. So the perfect place for me to take, let's say, like you were talking about fennel, nice little fennel start and drop him in right now, maybe three or four all around. This big bushy thing of nasturtium and just kind of tuck them in there. And they might be a little sad at first. Right? They're starting to try to grow a little bit longer and leggier than they need to. But all I got to do is just kind of trim the tops a little bit, keep them a little bit more bushy. And then when that nasturtium gives up the ghost, you know, I might even go like, okay, it could lick it another week, but it's not going to be happy. So just go ahead and cut it out. Boom. Then they can just fill in. And then again, you keep looking for things that will surplant the things that are difficult to grow during the summer. Again, your greens, grow New Zealand spinach. New Zealand spinach loves the summer. We'll grow all summer long for you. Uh, Malabar spinach will grow all summer long for you. Shard, arugula. Arugula is a great cool weather crop, but it grows right through the summer. It likes heat too. You just got to find places where it's not going to get completely pelted with the sun. And then your ace in the hole is aquaponics, hydroponics, etc. Because we can keep things cooler at the root zone and we can grow indoors. So I don't think there's any reason that any person that wants spinach... Uh, lettuce and arugula uh, as leaf crop need to ever go a week without it if you really want to grow it with hydroponics. A small rack system with some lights and a basic hydro setup, and you should be able to say, this is how much I need to harvest every week, so every week I'm going to start that much. So I need four arugula plants, two lettuce plants, three spinach plants, whatever it is. So I'm going to start one more than that, Every week, and I'm just going to move them into the grow-out phase, and I'm going to harvest, and I'm just going to keep a cycle going like that. It takes some discipline, but if you really want it, there's no reason you can't do it. Because like here, I have a winter period and a summer period where I really don't do well with spinach and lettuce. I can do arugula, but like spinach and lettuce are hard. Well, all i got to do is just run hydro during that period now. So that's another strategy. 
But the big thing, again, is, is instead of thinking secession planning as this goes away, it gets replaced, think secession planning as staggering out the same crop and, and just allowing for different spatial relationships. Because if it's an eight-week crop, and we do every, let's say we do every two weeks. So we got week one, the first goes in. Week two, the second goes in, right? Week three, the third goes in. Week four, we can plant the fourth one where the first one went, And we can do that all the way up. And now we have two or three harvests staggered through that really hot period. And then maybe there's a dry spell. I mean, we do have a Darth in our summer here in Texas. Even, like, you know, I think he was from Virginia is where the email was from. So even where you're at, you know, you, oh, I got peppers, tomatoes, whatever, all summer long. Good for you, man, because... My peppers, and I'm like the pepper whisperer, there's still a point in the summer where you get this huge harvest and you don't really want to take it all, but you start having to take it because the, they're getting to be where they're holding too long. They're starting to get a little wrinkle in them and stuff, and you know you got to take them. And then the peppers are like, you know what, I'll see you in a month. I'll put blossoms on in a month. It's too hot. I don't feel like it. Uh, eggplant, that's when eggplant takes off. So you can also like then, what else can we grow? What else can we grow that loves that period That's give us, you know, uh, melons like uh, watermelon and uh, honeydew melon and cantaloupe. Like they usually will produce really well for you during that period in time. So just try to think about creating your additional variety and staggering your planting, and you can do a lot better with that. Uh, next up, a guy emailed me and asked me about inverted fish towers. Sent me a link to one of those uh, YouTube videos that is really for nothing but views and trying to make some money and go viral. And a guy builds, and it's all the music. He never explains anything. He builds a cube with glass and some uh, support materials on a raft, puts it on a pond, sticks a tube in it, sucks the air out with a vacuum. Water fills it, so there's nothing but water in there, and the water stays, and it's above the water line, and it's water. And then he shows a video at the end, and koi and goldfish are all hanging out in there. And he says, I guess they love it. First of all, I've seen this done, and fish will go into them, but I feel like something was done behind the scenes to get that final shot with all those fish just hanging out in there looking around. Because I've never seen that naturally occur when anybody's ever done this. Ever. So I don't know if there was some kind of bait put in there that's that got them to go in like you don't feed them for long enough and then you shove food up in there or i i don't know uh, another thing that could have been done i'm not saying this was but this is something that could have been done there are sedatives you can give to fish and a lot of times if you order fish in the mail and the fish come in a bag and that water is blue they do that so you know that fish was given a sedative so use a color with the sedative Uh, to say this fish was sedated. So that sedates the fish so they travel better. And they do that so you know, dump that water through a net or something and discard it and put the fish into the aquarium without the water because you don't want to sedate your whole aquarium system, right? It's possible these fish were sedated and stuck up in there for that shot. I mean, people will do things like that. I'm not saying it, it couldn't have happened the way it looks like it did. I'm just saying I've never seen it happen. This is my opinion on them. They're really neat, And if you want to put vertical fish tower, floating fish tower, etc. on YouTube, and I have a link to that video so you can see what I'm talking about in the show notes. They're really cool. It's really neat. It's in a, almost an impossible maintenance scenario without taking it down, completely cleaning it, and putting it back. You are creating a beautiful environment for algae to grow. That's what you're making. Like, especially outside 
full-on sun, that's what you're creating. The other thing you're creating is a solar oven for fish to get cooked in. And not in a good way. Like, not in a way where you're going to eat them. It's just going to kill them if they actually go in there. Um, if you think about a glass box and the sun hitting it full of water, it's going to heat the water. It's also going to end up then causing thermal siphoning to go on and in exchange, and actually it's going to warm your water. Now, I, I guess at certain times of year that would be good, but um, through the summer it seems like a bad idea. I think it's a neat novelty. I think that if you want to do it, by all means, be encouraged to do it. I don't think it is a valid method of improving the biology of a backyard pond. I just don't think that it's a good idea in general, long term. So what I'm saying is if you want to do it, you need to do it in a way that is inexpensive and easy to change. Easy to just take away and do something else with. Like long term, I don't see it being viable. So how could you do that? Well, you could take something like a really big fishbowl or a fish tank and you could set some bricks up so that a couple inches of it go under the water level and just stack it upside down your pond. Then you take a tube up in there and some sort of a vacuum device and vacuum the, the air out of it, like a shot vac, because then if some water comes in, you're okay. You vacuum all the air out with your tube, you have a vertical fish tower. You didn't have to build it. I mean, a 10-gallon aquarium will do this. A big you know, 8-gallon fish bowl from MJ Designs will do this. And then you can play with it. But I, again, it's going to get skanky, and the only way to fix it is going to be to take it down, completely scrub it out, put it back up. And if it gets hit with direct sunlight, it's going to become very hot. And one thing you're never going to really have in there, unless you rig something up to create this, is a good flow. Right? You're going to have a kind of a stagnant area, another thing you don't really want. So for fun, sure, long-term biology, low maintenance, never going to happen. In my opinion, I could be wrong. Uh, anybody that's done it and is totally happy with it and yours has been sitting there for years and it looks beautiful and your fish hang out in there just like the video, let me know. Um, next, I got a question about rabbits in the spring. And if you can eat rabbits in spring and summer, you know, the whole thing is you never eat a rabbit in any month that doesn't end in R, etc. Um, or will you, you know, die of worms or what have you? And the, the belief is this. The reason you can eat rabbits starting in September, September, for instance, is the temperature drops enough that it's cold enough that it kills the worms. Can, can we think like rational human beings that use logic and reason for just a second here? What is the body temperature of a rabbit, and does the body temperature of a warm-blooded animal go down because the temperature that it lives in goes down? See the problem? The, the body temperature of a rabbit, for those that, that don't know, and I had to look this up, this is not one of those facts Jack just has in his brain, is actually a little bit variable, just like humans, but actually kind of more so than humans. Uh, normal body temperature for a rabbit can vary anywhere between 100.5 degrees and 103.5 degrees, significantly warmer than a human being's 98.6 average stable body temperature. Um, and it actually varies throughout times of day, etc., but... It, 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 it seldom, if ever, goes below 100.5 degrees. So now it's a nice, beautiful spring day, May. It's 94 degrees outside, and your bunny's internal temperature is somewhere between 100 and 103 degrees. And then September comes, and by the way, September and May temperatures aren't that much different. 
But let's say we have an unusual cold snap on September 15th and the temperature is now 48 degrees outside. What's the internal temperature of the rabbit? 100 to 103 degrees. So the worms are not going to go away because it got cold outside. Here's the small amount of truth to the myth. There's two types of um, worms that rabbits will typically get. There's intestinal worms and worms that are under the skin from like bot fly larvae. And this is something that can happen to a rabbit. It can happen to you. It can ha- I had a dog that we ended up having to pull these things out. They're pretty disgusting. Uh, they call them warbles. And so a fly will land and infect the rabbit's skin with its little maggot. And a maggot will go under the skin and will live under the rabbit's skin for a while and make a big, it'll look like a cyst. And eventually it will turn into a fly and leave. Now, that rabbit is far more likely to have that problem in the summer than it is in the, the winter simply because the flies are not active. But once that larva is in the rabbit, can get as cold as it likes, that larva is going to stay there until it matures and it's going to come out. Now let's talk about another reason this is a stupid thing to worry about. Um, how many people do you know that keep rabbits as livestock don't harvest rabbits in the summer? And the answer, if you know anything about those people, is none. You harvest bunnies when bunnies are ready to be harvested. That's how they breed You know, let's say two does and a buck, and they get more meat from that in a year than you would get from one meat coat because they breed them all year and they harvest them all year. So that's, you know. Then there's the next thing. Um, the Under the skin, maggots are disgusting. But if you've ever skinned a rabbit that has one, they really don't go into the, the muscle tissue or the flesh. It looks gross, so the pers- here's how the myth starts. Guy goes out, pops him a bunny in June, skins it. It's got two or three botfly larvae. And then he notices that when he harvested them in the fall, he never saw those. So the rabbits have worms in the summer becomes the deal. Well, if you have that particular parasite and you skin that rabbit, they're going to come out with that and they're gone. The other parasites, which would be intestinal parasites, generally don't infiltrate the muscle tissue, though certain ones in certain states can, but they're killed not with cold, but with heat. So when we cook the rabbit, we're taking care of any parasites that the rabbit might have that actually could be of a problem for us. So it's just, it's not worth worrying about. The other side. Rabbits breed heavily spring and summer. So the reason most of the game regulations say that you're not supposed to harvest them is because that's when they're reproducing and you're harvesting a mother that has kittens. I think that's what they call baby rabbits or kits. And um, they're going to die now because mom's not there because you're an asshole and you killed her while she was wean- you know while she was you know feeding her children. So that's the main reason we don't shoot rabbits in the spring and summer because it's their, their peak of their breeding season. Rabbits can breed pretty late into the year, but for game management purposes, unless we're trying to eliminate them because there's too many of them or reduce them, we don't want to harvest them during that period. But if you needed to, like there is no way I wouldn't eat rabbit. By the way, rabbit starvation is total bullshit, and I'm not even going to do it today. I'm going to let the truth be the truth and if you want the music you can look it up why rabbit starvation is the dumbest thing for any modern person to worry about that there ever was until you're living on nothing but starving rabbits don't worry about it 
too much protein. Morons. Anyway, let's move on from there. So I have a link to this, but Michael emailed me. He says, local university plans to drop SAT and ACT scores as it is signed. Uh, SLU, which is St. Louis University, to drop administration, admission requirements for ACT, SAT in 2021. And, of course, the article immediately goes on to blame COVID. And COVID isn't just killing the dying. And, again, when I say COVID's killing the dying, I don't mean your old grandma. I mean industries. I mean things. I mean stuff that was already on the way out. COVID is killing it. In other words, it's accelerating the eventual death of the dying. Um, it's also being used as a convenient excuse for industries and institutions to make changes that they wanted to make anyway, but had one reason or another to need some sort of political cover. Political cover doesn't only exist for politicians. Every organization, every group worries about the politics of their world. And if, if there was ever a place that's non-governmental, that's hugely political, it would be the university system. So there's a lot of whole tradition and value and blah, 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 blah. And we're so important that you need to apply to get in and you need to meet stringent requirements to be part of our prestigious university that's existed for five years. Um, that whole attitude is, is very prevalent there. So if it, if it, and also politics gets used by your competitors in a political way, even if it's outside of politics. So if I am a actual politician running for office and I do or say something really stupid that's of note, because they say and do stupid all the time, but of a particular note, then my opponent will say, Jack's a moron because he says blah, blah, blah. And he'll use the political spin and maybe even take what I've done out of context. Maybe he even actually thinks the same thing, but he was smart enough to say it differently. Okay? So you follow me when I say politics there. So now let's move into the university system. So if I am the prestigious St. Louis University, where the top scientist in blah blah came to get their degree, maybe. Um, well, it could have happened, but it didn't. But okay, we're still prestigious, right? and I drop ACT and SAT requirements, there is some inkling for competitive universities to say, you sure you want to go to St. Louis University? You know, they don't even care about your SAT scores. I mean, what's that about? Like, do they just let anybody in there? I mean, you qualify to come to our university, and we have these stringent requirements. Don't you think your employer is going to be like, St. Louis University? They don't even take SAT. Like, you see how that works, right? So there's a point at which... These universities all know that these things don't matter anyway anymore. How can you say that SAT scores don't matter? I mean, Jack, I studied for days and my kids studied for days and they're so worried about their test scores. You mean the test that you can take as many times as you want until you get the score that you want and only count the last one, that one that's so important? Well, here's the other reason it's not really that important. The entire concept of like your SAT scores mattering That was back when, and if you're my age, you remember when, when kids that you were going in school with like, I got into college. And it was hard to get into a college. There were less colleges, and they had actual admission requirements beyond your SAT scores. That was just one admission requirement. And yeah, I know they still have admission requirements today, but hear me out. So what happened was, in let's say 1986, if there was a thousand kids that, wanted to, that really wanted to go to college, really wanted to go and really tried to get in, maybe 750 got in, maybe 800 got in, depending on where and you know what the average demographic was like in the area you pulled those. But people legitimately tried to go to college in the 1980s, 
and couldn't get in. Just couldn't do it. Now, there are universities today that still have pretty stringent requirements, and admission to them is competitive. But what I'm saying is the average college was competitive, and it went up from there to like highly competitive, extremely competitive, right? Very highly, super highly, extreme, you know, hard to get into. But it was difficult to just get into anything beyond community college, right? Community college, even in the 1980s, if you couldn't get into community college, I don't even understand, right? Today, it is inevitable that if you have a high school diploma and somebody will give you a loan, that you can find a dozen colleges that will let you in the door. In fact, when my son went to college for a period in time, I noticed something very interesting. They did have an SAT or ACT score requirement. But the lower your class rank, the lower your score was to qualify. So if you had a class rank of like you were top 10 percentile in your graduating class, your SAT scores needed to be relatively high to qualify for admission to University of Texas Arlington, where my son went. If you were in the bottom 25%, they lowered the score of the ACT and SAT to be like, well, that means you can read, and you were able to put your name on the paper accurately, and you can do basic math. You totally failed, but you can do basic math. Like It was like, yeah, we'll let you in anyway. So literally, the worse you performed, the lower the standard was, which means they already really didn't actually have an ACT or SAT standard. They created the illusion that they had one, and my son went to college over 10 years ago. So you can see that this is this is more virtue signaling, really, like, hey, because of COVID, we understand that maybe you couldn't get to the testing site, or maybe you were distracted, so you didn't do as well, so we'll let you in now, but they were going to let you in anyway. Like, this is irrelevant. And what they're doing now is they're, the colleges are going into panic mode because they've overbuilt in the number of universities and they've overbuilt in the size of universities and they've overbuilt in the diversity of the programs within universities. I'm going to, without looking it up or whatever, or seeing what anybody else says about it, tell you that I believe that most likely 20 to 30% of people that go to college end up with a functionally useless degree. I don't even just mean that they have a job outside of their degree when they get a job, if they get a job. I mean that their degree is functionally useless. Like that, that even if they have a job that supposedly matches the degree, their degree has no relevance whatsoever on their ability to do their job. 20 to 30% functionally useless degrees. Like there's no value in those degrees. The, the general broad knowledge that they may have gained, they could have gotten with you know six months of dedication and a library card and, and, and the use of Google. I mean, really, like there's, there's, they have paid for something functionally useless. Well, people are beginning to figure this out. And that's why there's such a clamor to get government to pay for college. Government already pays for like half of college, by the way between grants and back-end money to universities and all. Like, the way that colleges run today, if you took the government money out, the cost would double for most universities, even the ones you don't think there's any government money going to help with the cost of tuition. 
But the other thing is, without government, the cost of a degree would would actually probably go down to about twenty five or thirty percent of what it costs today, because we wouldn't be building entire wings of universities to support functionally useless degrees. What we've done is we created an environment where money is so easy to access for a degree, the colleges will build a degree program on anything. As long because uh, this is what people don't get. I don't care if they say it's a non for profit. Non for profit doesn't mean the people that own it and work there don't make a just an f ton of money. It doesn't mean that. It means that the entity itself is run for not pro- not for profit. You can be the, the the owner of a non profit and be mega rich flying around in a G five. Ask the CEO of of let's say um, uh, was uh, Salva- not Salvation Army. Salvation Army is the one. Red Cross. Yeah, look look at how, look what the the jet fuel bill for the CEO of American Red Cross this year. It'll stagger your mind. Like it's a not for profit. So the college being a non profit entity does not mean that it doesn't make a f ton of money. So in essence, a college is a business. That's what it is. It's a business. Now, if you run a business and there's a market segment that has guaranteed revenue for you, if you just make that market segment. And you can easily access capital, and you know it will be profitable, and it will make you bigger. And if you don't do it, you'll be less competitive with all of your competitors. Are you going to do it? And the answer is most of the time, yes. It's always and it depends, but most of the time, yes. So by creating this ability for for kids with no hope to ever repay it, to borrow $150,000 over four or five or six years, to go to college. You've created an environment where any institution can identify a segment where kids will come to school for that degree and spin up a program for it with a guaranteed positive ROI. That can exist in an actual free market. If, if people had to actually get, even if they were borrowing the money to go to school, if when you borrowed money for a degree... The lending institution was able to say, and how do you expect to repay this? And your answer had to be better than, well, when I get a degree, I'll get a good job and pay it back. If it was, okay, so you're going to get a degree in, you know, you're going to get a degree in bitterness studies, right? So you're going to get a degree in bitterness studies, and that's good enough. You got in, they accepted you, here's some money. Pay it back, you know, after you get your degree. If, if the lending institution actually said, well, How much do people with a degree in bitterness studies make on average? What percentage of people wipe out? What's your credit risk to us? The amount of money you could borrow would go way down. But you have an almost unlimited blank check in the current system as a stupid 18-year-old that thinks a degree in bitterness studies is a good idea. That's created this artificial environment. Well, even with that, you know, you can have an entire generation you can parasite off of with that. You can do that for 20 years. But eventually, that whole generation is like, but I I schlep lattes at Starbucks now, and I have three degrees. They're all functionally useless, right? And all of a sudden, they're, you know, their little brothers and their kids and all are looking at them, and they're going, like, I'm not doing this. And it starts to all fall apart. And then you have something like COVID hit, and once something like COVID hits... And it just accelerates it. So, yeah, it is a sign, Michael. You're right. It is 
something that they're all going to pretty much do except for the very top entities. It is somewhat related to COVID, but it's related in the fact that it's exposed the festering wound. Um, it's not really COVID's fault, if that makes sense. So last, just a real quick segment. I've gotten quite a few emails recently saying, ah, I want to do hydroponics and all the fertilizers you recommend are gone. I'm like, no, they're not. So I looked them up and yeah, I can't get them. Um, Master Blend is out of stock. At least the three-part kit. And I wouldn't use one part without the other. Uh, and Texas Tomato Food is not even shipping if you order directly from their website. What now? Uh, I don't have a great answer. I have a good guess. The difference between good answer and a, and a, 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 a good guess and a great answer is a great answer would be, I know this works because I did it. I have ordered some of this to test it. It is, when I've looked for something that I can recommend here, it is the best thought of thing that's still currently easily available that I can find in the general marketplace. And ironically, it's made by General Hydroponics. It's a three-part kit. It is made up of a Flora Bloom, a Flora Micro, and a Flora Grow. And depending on what stage of growth you're looking for, you change the ratios. Here's what I like about it. Number one, all the people who I've read reviews by or watched YouTube videos by who clearly know what they're doing say that it works well. The people that say that it doesn't work clearly do not know what they're doing and don't feel to me that they're capable of following instructions. Uh, so that's the one thing. It's the people that use it, that seem like they know what they're doing, say that it works. Number two, I would expect that it works because General Hydroponics is one of the biggest names in the industry. Number three, it has a micro uh, component, which means beneficial microorganisms. I've been wanting to play with that anyway. Uh, my biggest reason, <clears throat> you do not need to worry about TDS or um, nanosemen measurements or whatever with this stuff. It gives you very clear, explicit instructions on a tablespoon of this, two tablespoons of that, and one tablespoon of this per gallon. So it has, much like Master Blend, a very specific ratio. And instead of like figuring out, well, my total hardness of my water is this, so when I take that back out, then this is my electrical conductivity and whatever, you just follow the recipe. And everybody that I've read reviews by and everybody that I've watched videos of using this stuff that followed the recipe says it works beautifully. And because it's a liquid, it is easy to dissolve. So you don't have any competition for solubility. Um, if you use it as advertising, this is one of the things I'm talking about. You have to be able to follow instructions. You need to put it into the water one at a time and mix it. Or it's not that it has a solubility issue, it actually can bond to itself. So if it says, well, you're supposed to use one teaspoon of the grow, one teaspoon of the bloom, and one teaspoon of the micro, and I, I don't know that that's what it would say. I'm just saying if that's what it said for whatever you're doing. And you get yourself a little glass, and you put, you're going to do four gallons, so you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and you mix that up, and you dump that into your water, your grow water. It all, you get certain chemical bonds that happen at that point, And then some of those nutrients become inaccessible to the plants because they're now bonded together. But if you go one, two, three, four, stir, one, two, three, four, stir, one, two, three, four, stir, now you're good. So some of the people that said they didn't get the results they expected, if you read what they said they did, you're like, okay, so you didn't read the instructions that are printed clearly from the manufacturer, so you used it the wrong way. Kind of like doctors are 
you know, doing trials using hydroxychloroquine the wrong way. Same type of thing. You got to actually do it at the right time, the right way. Does it necessarily work as good as Master Blend or better? Or does it work as good as Texas Tomato Food? I can't say. This is an issue that was just brought to me last week. I went ahead and ordered it. It's not here yet. Um, Amazon says it will arrive here between May 22nd and May 28th. I ordered it on the 16th. I'm expecting it to get here a little quicker than that because, as I've said with Amazon orders right now, um, I have found that they are way under-promising and over-delivering. So when it gets here, I'll start trialing it. And it'll take me like a month before I can conclusively say, yes, this is a valid replacement or it's even better. What I'm going to say, though, is I can't see why it wouldn't work. It's, again, one of the biggest companies in the industry. Lots of very informed people say, I love this stuff. So when I had to make a decision as to where to go next, because I still have some of the other stuff, so I don't need it yet, but I can see myself running out of certain things before maybe the problem goes away. So I wanted to get ahead of it. When I had to make a call and, and when I had to find something I could recommend, this is what I chose. So that's, that's as good as I can do right now. It's as honest as I can be. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it today. And if you did and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that, you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And unlike this uh, fertilizer that I haven't actually tried yet, if it's on tspaz, and this stuff may go on tspaz, but it will ha I'll have to wait until I try it, right? I mean, that's, that's my commitment. If it's on tspaz, I own it, I used it, and I would buy it again if I needed it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. If I would spend my money on it, I don't ask you to. Well... One of my favorite products for backup power, backup power is the Anchor Astro E7 26,800 milliamp portable charger. It's a battery backup for your iPhone, your tablets, and stuff like that. It is a beast. It will charge an iPhone about 10 times, a Samsung Galaxy S6 about 7, an iPad Air 2 about 2.5 times. It is a beast of power. It really is. It's a lot of storage capacity. But it's not my item of the day. One thing I will do is recommend products within a family, even if I you know, personally choose the bigger one, the smaller one, whatever. Uh, and that with Anchor is definitely true. The entire Astro line is, to me, the best backup power that there is on the market. Reliability, dependability, life cycle. And I have, this is one of those ones where I have gone through everything I can get my hands on tried everything, and this is the, the specific family. Until I find something better, I recommend. Well, I got a price alert today. The PowerCore next one down. So this has 20,000 milliamp hours, 20,100 milliamp hours uh, of storage capacity. It's the same product with a little less capacity. Well, it's on sale for $31.99, which is like 20% off. I wouldn't hesitate to buy it for a second. And then today, that actually makes it cost less than the big one. The reason I recommend the big one, the E7, is because bang for the buck, you get the most storage for your dollars. Your, you know, your, your milliamp hour per dollar is highest. You buy more, you get more. Well, when they drop this price so much, and the E7 sells every day for $65.99, $66, you can get two of the smaller ones for $63 versus $66, okay? 
but you're getting a, a total of 40,200 milliamps of capacity versus um, the, 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 uh, the 26,000. So you're getting not quite, but almost double for the, roughly the same money. Plus, you have two. Two is one, one is none. So I brought that item around today, but for another product in the category. It's, it's all confusing. Just go to tspaz.com, and you can see my most current reviews uh, and pull that up and take a look at it. Remember, if you start your uh, shopping at tspaz, you help us no matter what you buy. And if you're on the Daily Mail, you'll get this stuff in an email. And you, you can skip this part of the show because you know you'll always get the item of the day um, if you really want to. But just the best backup power solution there is. And the reason I spend so much effort on this world is our cell phones are our lifeline of communications in today's world. If you have your cell phone works, you know, you can do everything from entertain the kids with Netflix or Curiosity Stream or whatever to make a phone call, to make a text, to gather information, YouTube, use you know social media to connect with people when other systems are down, to find out what's going on. Like it is, it is literally the computer of communication is what your cell phone really is today. And backup power for your cell phone is such that you should never not be able to charge your cell phone. With one of these and a car charger, I mean, my God, you should be able to go months and, and without power and have your cell phone. By the way, generators are a good idea, too. I don't have an, one of those for you today, but uh, we ran generator power over the weekend. We had, uh, Just putting the ducks to bed, just getting everything set up for the evening. News stores were coming in, went out to kind of protect some stuff from getting wet. And as I was just checking on my, my new fish pond, I heard behind the house, about 100 yards behind the house, boom! And I immediately went, no, I bet the power's out. So I look at the pump, and the pump's not pushing water. <laughs> yeah, power's out. And uh, my wife's, I see my wife with a flashlight come out of the porch. I'm like, it's not coming back on for a while. So we get a thing from Encore. It'll be back on like an hour. I'm like, no, it won't. We get the generators out. I got the generators running the ponds. I got a generator running the house. And uh, everything's going good. And uh, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning. Power comes back on. So I got generators running, and they're noisy, you know. So I go shut all the generators off, start unplugging everything, and uh, get the, the house generator shut down, all the plugs unplugged. Wife starts putting stuff away. I go out to the, the, the barn, and I unplug the little generator that runs the ponds out there. And it's just I, 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 I turn it off. I unplug it. I'm about to put it down and plug them into the main outlet. And I hear, boom! I don't even look. <laughs> I just... Start the generator, plug it back in, go walk it up. There's Dorothy with the flashlight. Like, just get all the cords back, fire up the generator up, got all the fish tanks running inside, everything going, and uh, power came on about 5.30 in the morning. So I don't know what they did, but they blew up two transformers. And uh, So just backup power. I'm, I'm telling you, cell phones, it's a battery pack for your house. It's a generator. Generator's the way to go. Saved our bacon again. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. It's a 70s week, and uh, we have a really great song. This is called Moving Out, also known as Anthony's Song from Billy Joel. Um, this is one of those songs where you might go like, I don't think I heard that song, but if you, if you don't think you heard the song and you hear the song, you'll be like, oh, I've heard that song before, especially when you hear the ack, 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 ack part, right? You're going to know, like, I've heard this song before. Um, this is a great song for TSP and building a modern survival lifestyle. This, this song is 
literally could be a theme song for the show, believe it or not, because what it's about, and it's really centered around kind of like the New York City, New Jersey, um, kind of this ethos that was really common, especially in the 70s and 80s of, you know, it was the manly thing to work harder and do more and take a second to do whatever you had to do to provide for your family, but it wasn't really about providing for your family. It was so you could have a nicer car or a nicer house and move to, you know, the hack and sack and have a cool leave it to beaver house or something like that so that people could see you be successful. And your worth, your value was on how you looked to society. In other words, it was about following society's rules. Because nothing legally said you had to stay there in New York. Nothing legally said you had to pay the highest property taxes in the free world. Nothing said you had to do any of that shit. You could have left. But the police sergeant wanted a Cadillac, so he took a second job. Right? And Anthony wanted the house in Hackensack, so he broke his back. Right? That's the concept of this song. And Billy Joel's concept with it was, hey, look, um, if that's what moving up means, I'm moving out. I'm out of here. Done. I'm going to do something else. He went on a life as a musician. And I know what people would say, that, you know, easy to say when you're Billy Joel. The thing is, what I've noticed is most people that design their own life, they get the same attitude, even if they're not a multi-millionaire, you know, celebrity. I've heard from people, it must be nice. You know what happens to people that look at people that design their own life and say it must be nice? They stay right where they are. When you look at somebody that's done something really great for themselves and you say good for them, it's not long before you're going to figure out how to do it for yourself. And maybe you two will be moving out. The next thing up on this one, I just thought it was a little cool trivia thing. It's on the song facts about it. At the end of it, you hear kind of a car revving up and then like peeling out, moving out, like getting the hell out of there. It's actually a Corvette and it belonged to the bassist. Uh, from from Billy Joel's band, and they he got in his car and they like stuck a microphone out the window, pointed at the back tires, revved the car, but they made the sound effect from his actual car. So I thought it would be cool. Anyway, with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
moving out. Moving out.